hello, hello, and welcome to Streetwise, the podcast extension of The Pitch from Kansas City. I am your host and the editor-in-chief of The Pitch, Brock Wilbur. How are you today? I am working on things. I am working on habits. Uh, my habits that I'm working on are trying to create a sense of consistency across the board, uh, which I uh, feel like I rarely have. And I'm realizing uh, that if I even take one day off to try to do something radically different, things fall apart for several days after that. Uh, and so I'm maybe just best in one mode. <laughs> and uh, so I've been working on trying to do that. It's been good. I'm I'm having like the same thing for breakfast every morning and trying to wake up around the same time and, and certainly have no control over my sleep cycle yet. One day, one day I'm going to get that, but like um, getting up earlier than I ever have and uh, making sure to walk the mile each day at the very least. Uh, usually I manage to do it in the office uh, just by pacing uh, while worrying about things. So yes, uh, my, my, my better health choices are often driven by stress and fear and frustration and anger, things that will do wonderful things to my heart in the long run, I'm sure. It has been very important to me to have started on this path of trying to create consistency uh, in a week where everything has been on fire, just a dumpster fire start to finish uh, with no end in sight. Um, so I hope that you will find something that helps protect you at least a little bit from what's out there. Um, if it is consistency, that would be wonderful. If it's something else, that is wonderful too. Uh, and, and maybe just go buy yourself something. Our, our editor, Terrence, is currently buying himself a lamp. And uh, if that's how you get through this is lamp, uh, then fucking lamp it up, baby. Uh, today we have a wonderful episode. Uh, we're going to talk to a Kansas native who makes video games about his Mafia pig murder game. Uh, it's better than it sounds when I say it like that, I promise. Uh, and we have Nick's Music Corner, of course. But first up, our friend Jason from Stolen Dress Entertainment is reading a story from our last magazine, KC Futures, uh, where we talked about things that the city could do in the future, things we'd like to see happen. Uh, it is Emily Cox's piece about what we could be doing differently with the police department. Jason, take it away. Dismantle the police. Imagining what law enforcement could evolve towards. By Emily Cox. In the future, there will be no police in Kansas City. No more armed officers escalating situations with gun violence. No cops to harass people making consensual choices with other adults about drugs and sex. No traffic cops on power trips with racial biases. No sheriffs either, evicting people from their homes. In the future, everyone will have access to safe and healthy homes. Everyone will have food to eat. Schools will have all the resources needed to educate children, who will all have the potential for bright futures. Healthcare will be available for the physical and mental needs of everyone. If someone hurts you, there will be community mediators trained in transformative justice. You can call on people amongst your friends, your family, your neighbors, who will be prepared to step in and hold one another accountable, to address the conflict's roots, to help prevent it from happening again to facilitate actual justice. If people have what they need, there won't be burglaries to bust or trespassers to pursue. If people learn that caring for one another is more important than competing with one another and have healthy outlets for anger and avenues to heal trauma, there will be dramatically few assaults and interpersonal violence to address. Maybe that future feels intangible, impossible. But the steps to get there, to get to a future where everyone is free from the terror and harassment of living in a police state where everyone, and I mean everyone, 
is entitled to housing, food, health, care, respect, begin now. Janae Manley, a leader with KC Tenants, has tried to play by the rules of our current system. Five years ago, the father of her children abused her, and she called the police. I thought if I pressed charges, she says, he'll know that you don't do this to people, and it'll never happen to anybody else. And then it happened. He then abused the woman he was next with. When she and her children recently faced homelessness, she made the choice to return to her ex. I knew it was domestic violence or homelessness, so I chose to deal with my body and my mental wellness in order to give my kids a house. He has now hurt her again, and she is once again pressing charges out of a lack of alternatives. I've done it the way they say you do it. I've done it that way, and it did nothing, says Manley. It did nothing to make my kids have a better father. It did nothing to make them feel safe or secure. In our future free of police, Manley says, hopefully we are healing our communities instead of just punishing them for the traumas that have been put upon them and they are now putting upon others because they have never been healed. Instead of punishment, we need transformative justice. Justice that transforms harm from the root. It is a long-term healing situation where he has to own what he's done, not just to me, but what my kids saw, says Manley. Transformative justice is therapy for me, for my children. It is therapy for him. It is holding him accountable. At the same time, she continues, justice is not all about him. He's not the one who needs justice. A jail is not justice. It leaves me and my kids behind. All they care about is him being behind bars. And that doesn't do anything for my children's self-esteem. That doesn't do anything for my children's relationship with their father later on if they choose to have it. Transformative justice is parenting classes if they decide that's what he needs. It's giving him the space to really know that he did wrong, and also the space to know it's okay to say that you did wrong. For me, transformative justice is every single person who got hurt in this situation gets to voice that and how they can be healed, says Manley. What are the roots of what he did? What made him violent? What made him okay with hurting me? What made him okay with his kids seeing that? It seems like he needs some healing. Just putting him in jail isn't going to heal anything. It's not going to make me better. It's not going to make him better. It doesn't do anything. I've heard people say, oh well, if you were assaulted, or if your kid was assaulted, or if someone killed your kid, what would you do? Continues Manley. The truth is, I don't know what I would do. But I know that the cops don't actually make it so that those things don't happen. My goal is not to punish someone who hurts me. It is to stop people from hurting me. And the cops, all they do is enforce a punishment. Defunding the police is an opportunity to fund housing. Envisioning the future, Manley says, I would like to see land trusts. I'd like to see guaranteed housing for everyone. I'd like to see a safe place for my kids. I would like to know that I don't have to move back into an apartment with someone who abused me five years ago because we have to afford to live. This isn't about one broken department, but an entire system of control destroying lives and communities. Police are the enforcers of structural inequality in our society. If you believe that black lives matter, it is critical to understand that our system of policing and prisons is killing black people and upending families and neighborhoods. It's a myth that is intentionally perpetrated that the police are here to protect and serve, says Ray Billis, a co-founder of Black Rainbow, a new local collective working for social justice. They don't protect and serve, specifically for low-income and black and brown people. They terrorize people. They criminalize people. They don't do anything to decrease the harm in our community. We specifically use the word harm as opposed to crime because we see crime as a political category. Police and prosecutors are selective on what crimes are pursued and punished. Who is made criminal? The war on drugs has been waged for decades against nonviolent, low-level offenders and poor communities of color. 
While white and black people use and sell drugs at the same rates, whites are incarcerated at a rate of 450 per 100,000, and black folks are incarcerated at the staggering rate of 2,306 per 100,000. That's a lot of fathers being taken away from their children because they were pulled over with a joint on them. And once branded a criminal, it follows you for the rest of your life. You are relegated to a second-class status, losing access to jobs, housing, education, public assistance. Cops also face very few consequences for their actions. Qualified immunity shields police officers from liability for harm they cause. Their powerful unions, which historically are in opposition to the values and goals of actual labor unions, ensure officers have little accountability and often work to resist reforms. Cops have incentives to harm and harass community members, like making a bad arrest at the end of their shift so they can rake in easy overtime pay doing paperwork. That's really a thing. And there's little recourse in the courts. The Supreme Court has stripped Americans' Fourth Amendment protections around unreasonable search and seizure. Okay, so the police are a problem. So how do we handle the harm happening in our communities right now? As of this writing, 122 people have been murdered in Kansas City this year. We are on pace for 198 murders in 2020. Our previous record year was 1993 with 153 homicides in KCMO. This is a genuine crisis, and the police are incapable of solving it. Under KCPD's watch, we have had 100-plus murders year after year. As KCPD's budget has risen, so has gun violence in our city. Police have proven themselves unable to prevent murders or even find those who commit them. The current clearance rate is only 43%. We think that interpersonal violence is a very, very serious issue that does need to be solved, says Billis of Black Rainbow. We think that the way to solve it is not by increasing policing. What are the relationships that people have with systems that create a need to commit violence? What that means is, what can we do to make people not have a need to commit violence? We also think that homelessness is violence, continues Billis. We think that food insecurity is violence. We think that miseducation and diseducation is violence. The accumulation of systemic violence that is imposed on black people and brown people and low-income people creates these conditions that force people to have to commit violent acts for survival. Attempts to curb gun violence in our city without addressing systemic violence like poverty and racism will ultimately fail. We, as abolitionists, says Billis, aren't foolish by any means to think that we can pull cops off the street and release all the people from jails and that everything will be awesome. As abolitionists, it is our job to think about harm. And we came to this idea and this belief of abolition because we are concerned with the harm that takes place, the interpersonal harm and violence that takes place in our communities. What it means to be an abolitionist is wanting to actually solve this harm that takes place in our communities. Abolishing police and prisons is a long-term process of community transformation. The call to abolish police is a call to abolish harm and violence. If you are worried about the murder rate in Kansas City, don't look to the police for answers. In addition to their failure to prevent homicide, the police also commit it. KCPD's statistics on homicide explicitly exclude officer-involved shootings. According to data compiled by the Kansas City Star and the Washington Post, KCMO police officers have killed 73 people since 2005. Seven people have been killed by KCPD so far in 2020 alone. The people who are most concerned with gun violence and harm in our community should be the people most interested in the idea of abolition, says Billis. In July, Black Rainbow and a broad coalition of other local organizations including KC Tenants, One Struggle, NAACP, and the Urban League released an open letter to Mayor Lucas with demands that include cutting KCPD's budget by 50% and redirecting those funds to housing, health care, and education. Right now we spend $273 million on police. We think that's absurd, irrational, outdated, says Billis of Black Rainbow. 
That amount represents a whopping 38% of the city's budget. Kansas City is required by law to spend 20% of its operating budget on police, and this coalition says we need to scale back to the minimum. Their letter pointed to the statistics. From 2012 to 2018, KCPD's budget has grown an absurd 28%, an increase of over $50 million, while the violent crime rate has risen 42%. It is clear, increasing an already bloated police budget does not reduce crime. Among Black Rainbow's other demands, we want Chief Smith, who has a history of racism and violence towards the black community, fired immediately, says Billis. We want to suspend the use of paid administrative leave for cops under investigation. We want KCPD to withdraw participation in police militarization exercises. Reforms have not worked. Putting more money into the police department by doing things like funding body cameras or mandatory trainings are wrong-footed. Investing in community safety means divesting from the police. What we propose is divesting from the institution of policing that has never been truly proven to decrease harm, to decrease poverty, to decrease violence, says Billis. Instead, we propose to invest in life-affirming institutions, whether that be mental health, health care, education, housing, any of these types of institutions that have actually been proven to decrease interpersonal violence in our communities. Manley is clear. Every dollar that goes into policing is a dollar taken away from poor people. Every single dollar is a dollar taken away from institutions that we know would help. In talking about how defunding the police will work, Manley says, It's our elected officials' job to do the legwork and the research. I've been doing the research. I'm not getting paid for it. I'm doing it. So why are they not? And instead you tell me that defunding the police sounds radical and absurd. It sounds radical and absurd for us to continue to have police officers that we know have guns and are going to kill us. The threat of violence is never going to be the way to stop violence. Manley says, Stop the traumas that happen in our education system. Stop the traumas that happen in our houses when we're children. Stop forcing women to stay in abusive relationships to pay their bills or to watch their children. Our children wouldn't be dealing with these traumas as adults without resources, and maybe, maybe, violence would not be repeating itself if we invest in our people. Abolition is making police and prisons obsolete by reimagining how we relate to one another. In sight, a network of radical women of color organizing against violence paints a portrait of an abolitionist future. We seek to build movements that not only end violence, but that create a society based on radical freedom, mutual accountability, and passionate reciprocity. In this society, safety and security will not be premised on violence or the threat of violence. It will be based on a collective commitment to guaranteeing the survival and care of all peoples. Kansas City, can we commit to caring for one another? A lot of people, when they hear abolition or they hear defunding, they associate it with an absence, says Billis. When really, what we're saying is we want more presence. We want a presence of more positive institutions and services that actually protect and give life and give opportunities to people. We're not advocating for absence. We're advocating for presence. The abolition of police and prisons is as necessary as the abolition of slavery was. We will look back on this era of violent policing and mass incarceration and wonder how we let such injustice stand for so long. We will look back on this system of racial control and grieve and honor the millions of people who were harmed by it. In the future Kansas City, we won't be beholden to a cadre of people with guns who wield power over the rest of us. Casey will be home to well-resourced schools, to equitable health care, to plentiful good food on everyone's tables, to people who collaborate and care for one another. It is time to imagine the possibilities and bring them into being. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it's Nick's Music Corner.
Hello, I'm Nick Spasic, music editor for The Pitch, here with this week's local music recommendation. We featured Eddie Moore's We the People as part of a recent single-sentence singles roundup, which saw the band backing musician Jay Fowler for a cut off his upcoming debut full-length. We the People, which in addition to keyboardist Moore, features bassist producer Jason Emmond, drummer Zach Morrow, and turntablist producer Kethro, dropped their own full length on Friday, September 25th. The title track and second single off the album, Misunderstood, is an instrumental funk jam that manages to sound like Hella and Fishbone hung out together. It's no small feat to sound this groovy, so definitely check this out. You can find the whole album at wethepeople777.bandcamp.com. now with my friend doc and doc is a kansas native uh who has bounced around from lawrence and wichita doc is behind a big new video game that is coming out 
uh, to uh, the Xbox console <laughs> and probably others. Um, Doc is a wonderful human being uh, and, and a good friend. And um, it is wildly exciting to find out what he's been working on for the last two years. Uh, he is an award-winning video game developer uh, who... Uh, yeah, I'll just let him explain. This is this is fascinating and really proud of a good Kansas boy uh, getting a product like this out there in the world. Uh, Doc, welcome to the show. Would you please introduce yourself to the audience? Uh, yeah, I'm Doc Burford. I'm a KU grad who's now making uh, video games for a living. <laughs> I used to be a games journalist and I did game consulting for a while. I made an award-winning horror game and now I'm working on a, a new game about, well, Melancholy, I guess. Now, there's a. I suppose growing up, uh, you would have been uh, absolutely a hero of mine because it did not make sense to me, and still uh, probably doesn't make sense to a lot of people. How do you wind up working uh, in video games in Kansas? Because it seems like that's one of those things you have to be in San Francisco or Los Angeles or New York to be able to do. <laughs> well, um, yeah, it is. It is. It is pretty uh, challenging. In fact, when I I was going to Butler for some of my like early early courses, Butler Community College down near Wichita. Um, and as I was going down there, um, the department head for our, our sort of 3D interactive studies course or whatever it was called, uh, he was like, yeah, uh, sorry about this. I'm not going to be teaching you like video game tech. I'm going to be teaching you engineering tech because the State Board of Regents thinks uh, video game jobs are going to leave Kansas. So, uh, you know, we have a lot of engineering companies here, so we're just going to be teaching you that. And I'm like, that's not what I paid for um so what, what, was kind what of a, kansas video game jobs were leaving we didn't have any to start with that sounds wild right <laughs> right so they just they didn't want they didn't want to teach anyone you know real video game stuff for fear they would leave and of course what's strange is you move up to a place like ku right and i went to the i went to the film school there and you know those film jobs are going to hollywood <laughs> that's that's what they advertise there and everything else so i think there's you know a bit of a even a bias against uh, games, but the, the kind of the one, not an equalizer, but the one thing that makes uh, video games unique is that you can make them from anywhere because you are building them in usually 3D, but sometimes 2D. So because it's all software, you can do it distributed. I mean, on, on my current game, Adios, we have people in, uh, I think I have one from Croatia. I have one from Sweden, um, just people from all over. My, my main programmer is in Rhode Island. You know, like, we are completely distributed. We don't need, you know, real sets or anything. We don't have to go anywhere to, to film. We just have to sit down and build an entire world from scratch and uh, go from there. So it's as simple as that. There's an advantage. Yeah. You get to work remotely, but the disadvantage is it's uh, everything costs exactly the same, whether it's, you know, completely real world or totally fictitious. So, you know, in, in, what do you mean by that? Well, so in Hollywood, they make horror movies a lot because horror movies are very cheap to make. You can just, you know, go somewhere and be like, oh, there's a guy in a you know, costume and he's stabbing people. And it's easy. You, you can just kind of do that. You make fake buckets of blood like it's 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 pretty easy to do. Um, but if you want to go make, say, you know, Black Panther, right, you have to. 3D envision, like you have to build this entire environment in 3D with green screens and actors and all sorts of other things. Um, you, you start blending, you know, fiction and reality and, and it ends up costing, you know, two three hundred million dollars to make. So there's this huge spectrum in cost. And in games, everything costs 
the same to make because all of it is 3D. So on one hand, everything feels a bit expensive to make. <laughs> but on the other hand, uh, it means I can make whatever I want. There's no real sort of limitation, um, which lets me be a little bit more imaginative, I think. There is a, we, we did a cover story here at the pitch earlier in the year about how Kansas City has a, something of a blossoming indie, indie games community. And there is, a, for, for people that have not uh, followed indie games over the last decade or so, there's, there's been this very interesting thing over, I, I, I guess, the last 40-plus years of, of the existence of video games, which was sort of the first video games were sort of made by one person or two people. And then you started having games that were like four or five people and then everything ramped up very quickly to where we get like the Call of Duties and stuff where you have 500 people around the world working on it for billions and billions of dollars or a Grand Theft Auto or something. But uh, within the last decade, there was sort of this split where like the technology also allowed people to go back to making games as like one person or as a small group of people. And so it's uh, we, we live in a very exciting time if, if you don't follow into games where um, much like uh, digital technology shop for indie cinema – like you can you can have gigantic games like that, and you can have uh, Doc in in Lawrence or Wichita or somewhere working with somebody in Yugoslavia, and and they can also turn out a game that will wind up on the exact same store or on the exact same console as as what the other one is, and that's that's always very exciting. Oh yeah, <laughs> digital distribution has helped a whole lot. Like just being able to, you know, put my game up on something like Steam or Xbox and just have people download it. Um, that helps me out a lot because. When, like, kind of before digital distribution exploded, like 2008, 2009, 2007, like around there, um, where it was just about to take off, we had, you know, like, you try to go to some place like GameStop, and you'd be like, hey, I want you to put my game on your shelf. And they'd be like, well, our stores are the size of a shoebox. We can only, you know, DVD-sized cases to sit on our shelves, so we don't have room for you. Your game is not, you know, going to have the ROI that, you know, a game that spends a billion dollars on, on marketing. Well, um, so it made it really challenging. And now that we have digital distribution, we can do our own marketing. We can find audiences who might not, you know, be browsing store shelves who are looking for different strange experiences, you know, things like that. So yeah, going digital has really helped the industry and it's, it's allowed, I think, riskier stranger games to get made, which is, which is really good for us as a whole. And you, you certainly uh, enjoy dabbling in that sort of thing. So you, you get into games and, and you take on some very fascinating, very singular, very doc uh, sort of games. And you work uh, it, it, both, in, both in your individual work, but in like uh, how you advise on games and so on and so forth. You, you work as what we would call like a, a narrative designer. And, and uh, yeah, oh, yeah, as consulting. Yeah, and, and narrative design is a concept that like, uh, I, I've spent a lot of my career telling people like I'm a video game writer because it just makes easier sense to care to like what a movie has is, is the writer. What is, what is a narrative designer and what do you do in terms of that that makes your sort of like art different? <laughs> um, so the best way I can think to describe it is, uh, you know, when you're, when you're writing for a movie, right, generally a studio comes to you and is like, hey, we really like this book that one of our execs picked up in airport and we want you to, you know, basically write down how to make this a two-hour, you know, movie. Um, so then a person writes it down, and then they end up going through a bunch of revisions, and then eventually there's the, the shooting script, which is like the thing the cast does to make the movie, right? When games, narrative design is like, yes, I'm writing the story, 
but I'm also, you know, I'm assuming the player is going to walk into a room and then I'm going to say, you know, this thing is occurring to the player. Um, so we need to have like, we need to have animators come in and do this. Um, sometimes narrative design can be just like, yeah, I wrote, you know, somebody might be walking around like a, I don't know, like a, office building and they might see a computer and they might be able to go over to the computer and read what's on the computer. So narrative design is like any kind of writing that happens in the game. And because games and are often trying to having to like guess what people are going to do or funnel them towards a choice. Like you have to like you're not just making one script. You have to write like basically a movie where what if a character could do anything at any time and you have to be able yep. to predict yep. that or at least like try to push them in a direction that helps them move the story along. <laughs> yep. So it's not it's not just plot, right? It is literally, it could just be, you know, writing up a grocery list and then sticking it on a refrigerator so that, you know, a player coming along can see it and go, oh, I see what this character likes eating. Um, <laughs> with with my game uh, Adios, what I did was, is, or I'm working on it right now, actually, uh, I'm writing a, a journal for the farmer. Um, and most of it's supposed to be like, here are the things that the player can do. But if you flip back in the pages enough, you should be able to get a, a sense of who he was based on his like day schedule. Like, you know, three weeks ago he had a doctor's appointment or something like that. Right. Right. Um, so it's a, it's a mix of like both plot and just adding life to the world. So, and, and this is why we're uh, talking today, which is, I, I'm just as, as a friend and as a fan, just so goddamn proud of you. Uh, but you, you and your, your team here have just announced this game Audios. And as yep. you as you put it online, uh, 18 months ago, you were like, hey, do, do pigs really eat human bodies? Because, you know, it's featured in mob films and so on and so forth. And you looked into it and you're like, yes, pigs do eat human bodies. So, like, certainly mob hires somebody that's a pig farmer to help dispose of bodies. And you're like, what happens uh, if the pig farmer decides uh, he doesn't want to dispose of bodies anymore? So you, you guys have crafted a game, uh, which is basically you playing as a pig farmer on the the day that he wants to quit his job uh, while dealing with the hitman that has been sent there to either get these bodies taken care of or to kill you for quitting. It's just sort of you doing, uh, as, as the trailer seems to show, you're, you're doing chores around the farm while this man that might be murdering you is trying to talk you out of your choice. How, like, yep. That's not a video game that anyone else comes up with that idea, Doc. It's so wild to me. <laughs> Well, so for me, it's, it's you know, I, games are expensive to make, like I said, right? My my ultimate, you know, super amazing dream game is, is something that I would need, you know, significant amounts of money for. I'd need to employ like 50 to 100 people to work on it. Um, I can't afford that, right? Because I am just a guy from the middle of Kansas. I need to, you know, make a name for myself, whatever, right? So I started thinking about the least expensive games there were. And it's this genre of game called The Walking Sim. You walk around... And usually there's just a story played at you. They're very cheap games because there's no animations involved. It's just a lot of, I mean, sometimes there are, but it's, it's often just a lot of listen to audio files being played at you. Um, I didn't like that. So I wrote an essay on why I didn't like it and how I thought I could fix it. Um, I presented an idea to a, an acquaintance of mine um, and was like, here's the, here's the project I'd like to make. I, you know, and we, I just want to make it as like a little free demonstration to show, hey, I had some skills. Um, but they ended up telling me that it should be a commercial project, so we we pushed it and uh, worked, you know, as hard as we could. And uh, I ended up getting hospitalized 
uh, for working too hard. Turns out I have a congenital heart defect and, uh, the stress, uh, the stress broke me. Um, yeah, I, I made a, a weird little game about, uh, smuggling videotapes, um, of a murder and the videotapes, because the murder is supernatural in nature, the videotapes change the bodies of the people who watch them. Um, so it's a, it's a weird little horror game, but I also spent a lot of time watching doing... it. It's a really, really fun, uh, award-winning title that I'm, I'm I, I so yeah. I so love. <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely um there's definitely nothing like it. And it was because I, I sat there and I went, I want to do verbs. Verbs are in, in video games, a verb is a thing a player can do, right? So I was like, I want to have bird watching, I wanna have like, you know, conversations, like I wanna go to a gas station and talk to a guy at the gas station, right? I wanna drive mm-hmm. cars. Like I just tried to think through a list of things you could actually do and then I made a I made a game about that. Um, and yeah, it won some awards. People seem to really like it. And that got us the notice of, uh, Microsoft who does, uh, whose ID at Xbox program, uh, apparently really liked us. And so they, uh, they funded us a little bit to make our next game. Um, so I started a new company with, uh, a really good team. Uh, we spent a lot of time kind of laying out, Hey, we want to have good team health. We want to, you know, so I don't have to go back to the hospital again and no one else does. You know, we try to do our best to pay everybody really good. And we, I, I sat there and I went, I want to advance sort of my idea, right? So if my first idea was like a, a narrative game should have verbs, the next one was what if you could occupy a single space with another person, like a living, breathing person? And I think we had, you know, hundreds of millions, millions of dollars. We could have made something like Milo, which was this super experimental game that Microsoft tried to publish a billion years ago and didn't. Um, but, you know, we, we have this game where, yeah, you have to tell. It was the smallest game I could think of, the lowest budget possible. Was, you are on one farm, one location, and you have to tell this guy, I'm quitting. And he doesn't want you to quit because you're, you're friends, right? He, he's, he knows what he'll have to do if you tell him, like, if you, if you really mean this. And he doesn't want to do it. So even though, you know, he, he kills people all the time, for you, he, he really doesn't want that to happen. So it ends up being this game is kind of an argument, but the farmer is, I think, in a way letting go. So he is going around the farm, kind of showing the hitman what his life was like. And uh, they get to talking about it. And they, you know, there's, there's push and pull. There's times where, you know, one guy's like, you know, won't you miss this or something? And, you know, there's other times where it's like, I'm lonely out here. You know, it's just, there's this push and pull as you throw horseshoes or as you try to milk goats. You can even squirt the guy with goat milk. Um, as you're milking, uh, you know, I, I tried to add, I tried to add variety to it, but it was like, yeah, what if we could do a lot of different things, even cook your last meal, um, while there's another person present. So a lot of the game is, is him being present and then he leaves and lets you get your affairs in order. And then, um, he comes back and the game resolves. Um, it, it, it does the have all the, the makings of like, uh, like a Tracy Let's play or something like that it is just this uh, single farm location one day like it, it feels like a, it's something that you could probably put on stage and stage in that way but it's so much more interesting and exciting because like this is entirely up to the player to figure out where this goes to make these choices to to feel the weight of those emotions and that's something that's that's so exciting about indie games and the immersion of, of letting people be interactive with something like this and so I I just I love the idea of two best friends uh, locked in a discussion about death where we're not 
really talking about dust as much as we're talking about horseshoes, and it's set in a rural Kansas farm. And, you know, it's a lot of things that you're just not going to see anywhere else in video games. The next Call of Duty doesn't have a level like this. Like, people aren't going to find this uh, if, unless they come to you, which is so exciting. <laughs> yeah, I, I I crave game experiences that aren't like anything else. One of the One of the biggest video games of the year super celebrated title uh i i streamed it um because a bunch of people donated to my paypal and were like hey play this game live on stream and you know suffer through it because they were sure i wouldn't like it so i played the game and uh yeah i didn't like it um i sat there with a friend of mine who who works in in tv and we just kind of talked our way through it like why are the decisions happening here which movie is this copying from you know oh man this literally just the scene from the walking dead tv show like it felt very derivative and boring so i didn't i didn't enjoy it despite it being you know this critically acclaimed super expensive game and then i, I went to play uh, streams of things like that because you, you there's a million guys on 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 youtube or twitch that can play a game and be like this sucks you sit there and really break down things and often i, I think uh, also drawing from your other career experiences you're you're usually trying to fix it too like well if they just simply done this, that would have worked better. And that's so fascinating to me. I'm like, oh, they probably should have hired you to consult on this one too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I don't want games to be bad, right? There are people who know that you get clicks from negativity, so that's what they do. I'm not interested in being negative, although I do know that people seem more interested in uh, watching me if I'm playing something they think I won't enjoy. Um, and I think because when I enjoy something, I, I probably spend a bit less time going, here's how this could be better. Um, yeah, it's, 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 never, it's never meant to be like, oh, this is terrible, this is garbage. It's always like, hey, what is this? Why is this interesting? What were the decisions that play here that led to, make, you know, I, I grew up with like LeVar Burton and Mr. Rogers and like sneaking peeks at, uh, at you know, Bill Nye the Science Guy. My parents didn't like him because they're super religious and didn't like evolution. But, you know, I, I watched all these people who kind of were like, here's a really complicated subject, but it's actually pretty easy to understand. And if you're curious and you're excited, you can learn a lot and it can, you know, kind of help you grow as a person. Like, I didn't know that I, I was interested in knowing how crayons get made until I watched, you know, Mr. Rogers and he showed that off one time. Like, there's uh there's something beautiful about understanding how the soup gets made, right? And so, you know, sometimes I really enjoy playing, like I played a surrealist game called like Ineffable Wonder of an Edible Place or something like that. It's a super short free game made by some people in India, I think, that's about like colonialism in India and dealing with the emotional experience of that. And that's not something that's going to appeal to everybody, but it's super interesting. And given that it was like 30, 40 minutes long, it was absolutely worth my time. And also, um, neither so you nor I could make that game. Like, that's not our experience that we could ever share with anyone. So the only way we're going to learn about that is via their experiences. <laughs> yep. So I'm always hungry for what's new, right? I will play the big, you know, important things if it means I can get paid. But, like, what I really get excited by are surprises. I love playing things that, that I've never seen before. So I... As with both of the games that I, I, I made, I tweeted about them first. I was just like, hey, this uh, sounds interesting. I have a running thread of, like, games I want to make. The filter I pass those through is, have I seen this before? And if the answer is no, then it's like, okay, this is, this is good to go. This is what I want to make. Like, it's, 
if it excites me, if I know how it's going to play and if I can, if I think I can pull it off, then it's one that's out there, but it, it has to be interesting. If it's not interesting for me, it's not worth it. Cause I don't want to be one of those, one of those people who just kind of writes the genre, you know, just hits all the beats. I don't want to be predictable. Right. Um, Cause there are people like that. They're very, I would say dependable people in Hollywood who have, you know, quote unquote, a brand, right. And they, they, if you're going to write a screenplay or, or make a movie in a certain genre, like say, if you're going to write a Batman movie, uh, a lot of people like to go for David S. Goyer. You know, he, I think he was also the, he did some X-Men movies or something like, no, that was Hater. I don't know. But, you know, they, a lot of people tend to go for like very specific people. Me, it's like, I made a horror game. You know, now I've made a, uh, a melancholy game. Who knows what I'm going to make next? I'm, I'm thinking maybe, um, maybe like a Studio Ghibli style game, very sort of heartwarming and sad. Um, that might be my next project. Or I might make, you know, super hyper-aggressive first-person shooter. I don't know yet. I just know no one else has made what I'm going to make. That, that's that was going to be kind of what I wanted to end on was that, like, uh, in watching the trailer, I was already so excited. And then there was a moment that I, I shout laughed at my screen, and, and people won't know this about you, and, and perhaps... Uh, it seemed like there was a disconnect here, but uh, one of my favorite things about you is that you are a connoisseur of shotguns and video games. Uh, you you have very, very specific tastes uh, and know what you're looking for and what you want from a shotgun and a video game. And in the middle of the trailer for, for this that uh, doesn't have any violence in the trailer uh, or, or anything like that, uh, there is a shot where uh, your character picks up a shotgun. I was like, ah, Doc's game. I tell right there. There we are. <laughs> Yeah, the um the the two of you get to go play skeet. Um right now given the budget we have, we're probably not going to let you uh kind of compete with each other, but if we had more of a budget, that's what we would have would have liked to accomplish is the two of you basically having a friendly game of skeet. I've joked that if we, you know, make a million dollars, we will uh will add a basketball hoop and let you two play a game of horse. <laughs> so that's, uh, the cost of things in video games are wild, and no one knows. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, I have to, you know, if I'm going to do a basketball, right, I have to get all the sounds for it. I got to have somebody go record sounds and send them to me. And then I have to, you know, create the physics of a basketball getting thrown and bouncing around, right? I have to figure out what happens if a basketball rolls off the court and where it goes, and if it hits a place that the player can't get to it. Like, I have to take into account everything, and then I just spent a month the working thing. on the gravity of a ball. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it could be like a couple months just to get that. Where in a movie, you just like, you could knock out a game of horse in like a single, you know, single day um, if you plan for it. So, so where it's, can it's, people uh, follow your work and where can they follow the game? Well, um, the game is coming to Xbox and currently Steam. Uh, we're probably going to release it on a few other PC platforms if that works out. Um, and, you know, maybe, maybe other consoles, but if, if, I was going to release those. I couldn't talk about it yet. Um, those, the, the best place to follow it is just to like currently look up Audios on Steam. That's where we have our page and our wish list right now. Um, you can follow my company at, uh, I believe, Mischief Develop on Twitter. Our, our company name is Mischief, but somebody's sitting on that uh, at. So it's Mischief Develop. Um, and then they can follow me personally at Doc Squiddy on, uh, on, tw on Twitter. Doc, thank you so much, and congratulations. We're all so proud of you, and I cannot wait to play the finished product. <laughs> thank you so much.
All right. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Streetwise from The Pitch in Kansas City. Thank you so much for listening. Please consider checking out thepitchkc.com, uh, where you can see all the great work that we are doing out in the community. Please consider tossing a couple of bucks our way. Uh, can always use a little bit of help, uh, especially right now when things are so bleak. Uh, but if you don't have that, that's perfectly, perfectly fine. Uh, believe me, we all get it. Uh, I hope you all enjoy, and I will see you again next week. Pitch in, and we'll make it through. Bye.